There aren't any winners anymore. There aren't any captains anymore. There aren't any leaders anymore. So what you're seeing is a dressing room full of senior players now who have got soft characters. This snowflake generation that we're, we're seeing and hearing about. Welcome to Football Stories, a podcast that tells some of the more fascinating stories from the world of football. The people we talk to in this series might not be household names, but they're all people who have had big impacts on the sport in some way. And if you're a Manchester City fan, well, today's guest has had one of the biggest impacts in recent years, arguably. It is former Manchester City youth coach Steve Eyre. The man who bought through players from the Youth Academy into the first team, the likes of Daniel Sturridge and Kieran Trippier and Jaden Sancho, and of course, very relevant at the moment, Phil Foden. We chat about some of the best players that he's seen in this interview, some of the ones that didn't make it and some of the ones that did, how youth coaching has changed through the years, and of course, we do discuss that man Foden as well, and what he can potentially go on to achieve in the next few years. Today's guest is Steve Eyre. He is... The youth coach. Good afternoon, you okay? Yeah, I'm good. How about yourself, Steve? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. Funny time in football at the moment, isn't it, for anyone involved in the game? Not your normal day-to-day? No, no, it's it's adapting and it's evolving. It's getting better. <laughs> the football teams are getting fitter. Uh, the games seem to be uh, wide open in these early stages with more goals. I think referees are having uh, less decisions to make with pressure from the crowd, making also them be better games that you were watching on television but obviously nothing will replace the uh, supporter experience of getting into the ground and, and following your team and um, obviously trying to put off the opposition as best you can to help your team win and get an advantage but obviously the main thing is you know through this pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic that there aren't many more casualties that we've had beside already. From the coaching side from the kind of side of the people who have to sit on the bench really close to the fans who often I mean football fans aren't ones to hold their tongues very often they let you know when you're doing something that they're not happy with is it actually a little bit of a welcome break not to have people there shouting in your ear I'd gladly be sat in the dugout at the moment so I'm I'm miss, I'm out of the uh, out of the game currently just doing a little bit of media work just working towards my next opportunity so uh, ideally you want the football supporters back in the stadiums following the teams to enhance the atmosphere I've heard people with huge esteem in the game you know and profile suggest that football is nothing without supporters so I'm happy to suggest the same. It still appears to be competitive, the games. Um, it still appears to be 100% from the players, but you know, just that edge that players thrive off and coaches and managers, uh, which comes from the energy from the supporters, is obviously missing from the game. And uh, like I say, we're adapting, it's evolving, it's getting slightly better, but it's not the same. You were a player at one point, but it was the shortest of playing careers. I was checking you out and I was looking at Wikipedia and seeing where you'd been and what you'd been done. And it has you registered with Wigan Athletic for a total of no appearances and no goals and one season. It was pretty early you decided to call it a day in terms of your playing career, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was. Um, and I've heard and seen and come across loads of people say, oh, for this reason, that reason, I was injured and, and the managers didn't like me. But I just wasn't ready, I don't think, at, at 19, 20. You don't get the time that you get now. I think what you get now, the opportunity to be a young player, you certainly get longer. Mm. Uh, in the end, you know, the same question will be, are you going to be good enough? But when I was having a go, you know, at 19, 20, you had to be jump out of youth football and go straight into somebody's first team setup, really. You know, there was only one sub, two subs, possibly showing my age a little bit there. And as, <laughs> as it's grown over the decades, you know, it's gone to two, to three, to five, to six, to seven subs. 
there's under 23 leagues, there's loan systems, and it really does favour the late developer. Now, there aren't that many of them, but it was uh, more of a guillotine approach, I think, back in those days. And I had a, a decision to make. I could have done with another 12 months' time, but there's um, 10 million footballers could have said, that, said the same. But what I did do very quickly at the end of my contract at Wigan, like I say, I was progressing, but, you know, you need to be 20 years of age. You need to be, you know, in the, in the first team, really, mm. in terms of working within a budget from the club, which I've understood as I've got older. But what I did do, I had an opportunity to then possibly spend the next weeks and months going out on trial maybe drop down uh, the levels, uh, even though Wigan were, were, were not Premier League as, or FA Cup winners as, the, as they have been since. But I got an offer, opportunity, unheard of really, to, to go on Manchester City's coaching staff and mix my time up from their community scheme with club legend Alex Williams and, and, and joining with the School of Excellence Stroke Academy set up. And it was something that was really tugging me towards thinking, well, I can do that and possibly play non-league now. I ended up having a hell of a lot of injuries in non-league football. I had knee operations, ankle operations, both my hips done, double hernia. So I actually ended up having 13 uh, operations via football that put me out for a large wow. amount of time. So that actually probably stopped me playing non-league football. But the truth is, probably at 20 years of age, uh, if I'm being kind, I wasn't ready. And if I'm being harsh on myself, possibly, you know, I was short and not good enough. So something that I accepted quite quickly because thankfully it got me on the road to coaching far earlier than I expected, far earlier than anybody else. And it's now given me 30 years experience, you know. I don't know if it's like competitive rivalry, but against lads who are just starting, lads who are just doing the badges, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 48 presently. And um, I've basically been coaching so was, since I was 19 and 20. So I'm not for one ever going to suggest that I'm a brilliant coach or the best or better than anybody else. But I've certainly got 20, 30 years head start on many. Do you ever regret that decision to step away from the playing side of the game? Well, well no, not really, because it's, it's made for you quite often. Mm. But like I say, I had something to, to not necessarily fall into, but go into. So it was an adventure. No secret of the fact that I love Manchester City. I was able to go and play in the conference, which is obviously the, the fifth tier of English football for Runcorn and Southport, you know, which is which was the next level down from, from League Two, which was fine by me. Spent a bit of time in, in the Northern League, ended up at my local club, which is Salford City, right at the very, very, really early start of their growth. And I had some fantastic times there, but it nearly always ended up with me finishing the seasons on the operating table with knee reconstructions, ankle reconstructions and, and, and much more. So, you know, that I can't do anything about that. It, it certainly took my appetite away from playing that level of football because I was basically playing on a Saturday and Tuesday night at Runcorn as it was sometimes as far as Dover and then I was limping into Manchester City the next morning to train young players and uh, in the end it wasn't a hard choice for me when I had to sit down and decide one or the other and obviously the long-term future and, and gain for me was to try and become a really really good coach and progress in Manchester City system and of course I stayed for 21 years from from the age of 19 till I was 40 before I had the opportunity to manage in League One with Rochdale so it was a great early upbringing for me and whilst I was disappointed to be not playing in the Football League at 20 years of age, I was absolutely thrilled to be coaching at Manchester City at the same age too. Is the management side of thing something you'd like to do a little bit more of? And I think for most people, the line between first team coach and manager is slightly blurred anyway. You had the spell with Rochdale, you mm. had the spell with Huddersfield as yeah. well. 
Is that something, I mean, just as you say, you're still relatively young in terms of a coaching role. So is that something you're looking to explore further in the future? Or have you just kind of gone, well, my talents are best de- best deployed on the on the training field and being a coach and developing yeah. players? Yeah, it took a while for me to work out what that is. And again, like I say before, the game sometimes decides for you. But I've earned the right to become a manager, having you know been part of a very successful setup at Manchester City. Experts at the time uh, above me and around me, basically fathering me. In Jim Cassell, the academy manager, Paul Power, ex-club captain, club legend, uh, Alex Gibson, the best under-18 coach of his generation, Barry Poynton signing all the best players eventually. So I was in a really good spot. We won the Youth Cup in 2008, obviously yeah. pretty much won the under-18 league most most years. And I was progressing coaching every player in the club, as I'd, in the academy as I'd left, overseeing the coaching at the youth department and uh, working with the reserves, which was then turned into a, a fancy name of development squad. It was under-21s and under-23s and winning leagues with them. So it was a time for me to go, the opportunity for, you know, Rochdale. It just gives you a little bit more profile. You're in the electric chair of management. Sheffield Wednesday and Charlton were big clubs in that season, Sheffield United. And it was tough because the previous manager was overachieved for a number of years and he went on to a new challenge at Barnsley. And uh, and I went in, but again, it's like everything. It's it, the, the 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 main thing you want. You do get support, you get help, um, but you don't always get time. But what it did do, that the the Rochdale challenge, if you like, and I always believed that there was growth and development. I was trying to develop the whole club. I see other people do it now, and if I had my time again, I think I'd be more concerned about developing the team and live very much for the here and now rather mm-hmm. than the future. But I obviously thought he had more more time on a three year contract. But it just gives you a little bit of status and a little bit more respect that uh, you're one of only 92 as it used to be uh, doing that job but what it did do once I left Rochdale because the inevitability with every young manager is that you you know you get the sack you've got to try and get the first job done correctly but I then found my role at Huddersfield as a development coach with Simon Grayson getting promoted in the same season that Rochdale got relegated via a playoff at Wembley in a penalty shootout and then growing at Huddersfield for six years taking on development roles you know winning two leagues uh, becoming first team coach being a joint caretaker manager with Mark Lillis on three different periods and it just added to my football experience uh, and the journey so probably at that moment I realised I think that my role was in uh, coaching and probably supporting um, any type of manager really whether it be older or younger so I've worked for Simon Grayson you know Chris Powell was an amazing man to work for Mark Robbins was Huddersfield manager for a spell as just one league one uh, with, with Coventry um, and then on to working with Joey Barton at Fleetwood who obviously I knew as I was growing as a coach in the Manchester City setup, he was growing as a as a schoolboy youth professional to becoming England international. So it was probably the leaving Rochdale, having a go at being a manager, and thought I'll still be a manager. But when the role to become a coach at Huddersfield came up, I really felt that it dovetailed really nicely in in how I see the game and and how I see me playing a part in it moving forward. And to this day, that's probably the moment that I won't say changed my career as such but certainly changed my uh, nor my ambition but certainly changed my my profile into thinking that I'm better supporting a manager than probably being the manager myself. I want to talk a little bit about your time with Manchester City as a youth team coach or development coach or whatever term it changed into during your spell there. (laughs) 21 years you were there when you went into that job obviously you left the playing side of the game as you said at 1920 do you think that made you different in terms of the way you dealt with 
young players coming through compared to most yeah. of the coaches there. Yes, definitely. Um, there was some senior coaches, like I say, there was some serious expertise uh, in Alex Gibson, Paul Power, Frankie Bunn, you know, some real top expertise. And I had my own my own style and it was well liked, uh, I think, by the by the players. I think it was well liked by the staff. And obviously at that tender age, it was it was largely liked by the parents. We always made a promise to the parents that we won't ever be their fathers, but we will try our best to be next in line in, in terms of discipline, in terms of how we will mould their characters and obviously in how we will treat them because we're going to be spending... 12 hours a day with them every day for you know well hopefully 10 or 12 years for some of them so we had that youth cup winning team in 2008 but the best thing about it was i think 11 of the squad were there from nine years of age all from the, the greater manchester radius so i think it was vital but i think what the staff saw in me is the empathy that i could still join in all the training sessions i was still capable good enough obviously to work around the young players and join in with them and I was probably 10 15 years younger than the actual coaches so there was a bridge you know for me that I, I could almost mix between the, the, the players mm. and the staff and I think the players recognized that I was somebody that um, was also growing as they were trying to get their own careers I was trying to grow as a coach but I think they knew that they could have a really great honest time with me amongst the good training and work that was going on and you just build relationships with the young players you build it with the parents you know the mothers and the fathers of course course and we had a nice mixture so at that time like I said Jim Cassell had a similar journey to myself in terms of an early an early football career his was cut short with injury but went into development at Oldham Athletic a little bit of scouting a little bit of everything really but he then came and as this expert at Manchester City's academy as he proved to be Alex Gibson top coach worked with England schoolboys and Paul Power was the club captain for so long and uh, played for, for City with so many appearances so they already had their own mix but I just think me just being a young possibly even a helper at that point right at the very start I think it just added to uh, the ingredients if you like for the cake because I think it was just a really good mix and like I've already suggested in, in Barry Poynton he would be out on the road trying to find us all the best players in Manchester then then in the UK and then further afield in, in Europe and as we grew we ended up being the best academy in the country. Some Absolutely incredible household names have come through the academy during your time there. I'll talk about some of those players very shortly that I'm sure you had first-hand experience of. But I guess the other thing you've seen over those 21 years at Manchester City is absolutely massive changes to the way youth team players will have been dealt with and developed. What do you think has been the single biggest change that you've witnessed during that time? Uh, well, obviously, the, you know, we have to say it. It's not the elephant in the room by any any stretch of the imagination. But Manchester City's whole vision, if you like, changed, obviously, with the, with the money that came into the mm. club, which allowed them to progress the first team. And I used to be told by dad, granddad, friends of dad and granddad, you know, don't worry, son, when we were getting relegated and I was in tears as a young schoolboy, you know, watching City go down the leagues. Don't worry, we'll be the biggest club in the world one day. And, uh, you know, they were obviously at that point never never knowing, but it's ended up being, you know, work in progress towards that. So it's obviously the money that's changed everything, but society's changed, hasn't it? I mean, it's like, 
we used to train. There was tough love delivered and players could take that. We were loving football fathers, but we were tough disciplinarians and we helped these players get through their football journey from 10 upwards. But we also helped them get through life. Again, not at the expense of, of any 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 tactics of any parents but you know we really felt that 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 much about the club the project and and the boys that we we almost nursed them through through schooling through all sorts of things so that generation i think was full of football fathers as coaches mm. i think of steve highway at liverpool he's spoken so highly of you know paul mcginnis spent a lot of time at manchester united there were others you know liam brady at arsenal and you just get the feeling that it was a football father in charge of the development and as a consequence that would have a knockdown on all the staff and they would behave the same i do think that's a miss now i think a lot of coaches now i think they are very much i think this epp project has opened it up and i think there's like hundreds of jobs in football now hundreds and basically when i started it always felt there was about six great people did everything and now when i go around the country i see about 80 people doing not much so i think it loses that personal touch I think it loses their empathy and I think there are that many coaches now who call themselves coaches. I think they have a clipboard, their initials on the kit, but they don't really know what know what they're doing. They thrive on just keeping their head down in the system and the biggest disappointment for me is now too much acceptance on losing and results aren't important and there's not enough uh, decisiveness going into trying to gain results and we were always taught and the way we were, as young kids and we delivered that to to our players as we got older at Manchester City that you know win with style if you can't win with style just win but also lose with humility forever learning but you know it pays to win and I think in that case you, you you're developing characters as well as footballers who understand how to run a clock down where to put the ball on the pitch at a certain time in the game to secure victory and winning has got to mean something and, and it's also got to hurt when it doesn't happen. Now I think it's absolutely riddled with coaches who take the pressure off themselves by suggesting that winning isn't important and it's not about results. And what you're seeing is a dressing room full of senior players now who have got soft characters, this snowflake generation that we're, we're seeing and hearing about. And the amount of head coaches and managers I speak to who say to me that there aren't any winners anymore, uh, there aren't any captains anymore, there aren't any leaders anymore. And I, I just stand there baffled and thinking, well, if the academy system is breeding the type of player that has played from nine years of age to the age of 19, where winning isn't important, how is he expected to think that winning is important when it's 20 and 21 years of age? And we've just created this culture now where it's not about results. Well, it is. It will always be about development. It will always be about getting better. But it's absolutely foolish just to even consider that it's not about winning either. And that's why I do think that there is talent that has been gained in the last 10 years of academy football. But I think characters have become less. It's really interesting you say that because you're right. There is a constant accusation for many Premier League teams, particularly that there is no leader on the pitch. And people often say they need a Roy Keane. You need a Roy Keane in that team. That, well, absolutely. That, that's something that you think is... It isn't necessarily a personality trait. It's something that has to be trained into the players. Yeah, I mean, you hope it's born into them. You hope it's drilled into them by parents. And like I say, you don't want spoiled losers, but we don't want good losers either. But lose with humility and learn from it. Uh, learn every day, but try and win at everything you do. 
I also think as a coach, I'm as guilty as anybody, the way what players crave these days. They all want to play possession in training and a coach will go out half an hour before the players and he'll put out a big grid, a big square, and he'll have a, a, you know a dozen players and it'll be 5v5 and a couple of like talented floaters and the ball will just move around it'll be circulated around a square and the worst thing that happens in that session is that the ball will be given away but your team yourself or your teammate will get it back within five seconds so that the training session is dominated by passing the ball possibly losing it occasionally pressing the ball running after it getting it back and you're getting the sweat on and you're working on your angles and you're sharing the ball around and there's half an hour of your session gone you might only have an hour and a half with these players and that's half of it gone I'm sure that as a generator, I know there's games that still go on in training, but when we used to play, we used to play out more with our friends. It was never a draw. It was always next goal winner because the games were always tight because all your young friends could play football. You'd play five a side with your mates. And in training, you were constantly having matches and you had a full understanding of the scoreline and the clock. Mm. Now I just think that there's far, far too many little 5v2 little piggy in the middle circles and squares. And it just takes all the... There's nothing to organise. You know, stay with your runner, pass your man on, get up, get back, quicken up, slow down. You know, those type of information, sound bites that go into football matches. And like I say, footballers these days, you just constantly hear nobody talks anymore, nobody leads. Well, I just think we spend far too much time keeping the ball in training and, and, and then chasing it to get it back to keep it again, that we've actually lost organisational skills and we've lost com our competitive nature in winning and losing. And like I say, we didn't know what a draw was back in the day because you just played until one of your teams won. And if you, if you lost, you were disappointed and it felt bad. Now I just think it's just very, very quite lackadaisically easy to just have a bit of a training session, have a feel of the ball. And I think that sometimes can carry into your culture, into your dressing room and into your match day experience on a Saturday. You're talking about how coaches were father figures when you were at Manchester City. I think one of the areas that youth development has been criticised in recent years has been maybe how coaches didn't pay enough consideration to, or how clubs didn't pay enough consideration to young people's mental health and the idea of not maybe supporting players when they've not been taken to the next level or been dropped by a club. Was, something, was that something you were aware of during your time? Yeah, on, honestly, I really believe we, um, you know, we, we got that close to them emotionally. Um, you know, you had help with the education team at the club and it grew. But you had empathy for these young lads, certainly, you know, ones that had travelled from all over Europe to live away from home, that were in the digs. They were the ones you thought of the most that possibly, you know, were, were in a little quiet spot and you could understand why it's a long way from home. I mean, I was an apprentice at Burnley Football Club. It was exactly 35 minutes from my house. But you were away from home, you were away from your parents and, and your friends and, you know, if you'd had a bad training session or a, or a bad result on the Saturday and, you know, all things just got on top of you a little bit. The, just the fact that you weren't even in your own bed and eating your own food at home. So just small things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think they're quite easy to overcome. But yeah, the, you know, the, the, the mental health issues is something that I do believe has, has had progress in, in, in recent years because it's been highlighted and documented. It, it appears that there are more casualties from it. But I do believe in, again, I, I, I think I'm just talking 
from a different generation now, but we, we were that close with the players. There was very little we didn't know about and was very little that the players wouldn't share with us. Uh, so we were kind of like on top of it straight away because certainly at Manchester City in, in my time there, led by Jim Cassell, you know, we all deeply, deeply, deeply cared. We wanted to, like I say, play well, train well and win on the Saturday. But we were doing our best to father these boys, you know, second place to their own fathers. So I do believe that we were counsellors in ourselves without the necessary training because I believe we cared that much. But obviously what's happened now, there are actual, you know, specialist people that you, you can go to. And I'm really glad that young players these days have got that support because we know the percentages of, of the players who make it and even they don't have a great time when they do. But the fallout of players that don't make it can scar you for a long, long time. And uh, sometimes you need support in that. And in, in the old days, it was possibly frowned upon that you would ask for help. But thankfully, that seems to be getting better every year now that people, A, know where to go and they're not frightened to go and do it. Do you think there's too much pressure put on young players in this scenario? Or is that just part of the game? And I suppose if you're going to be a professional footballer, you need to be someone who has the mental strength to cope with pressure yeah I think money's come into the game um, and I see I see parent rivalry um, really schoolyard behaviour really jealousy in terms of contracts um, agents that's certainly part of the game that doesn't sit right with me that I think has been spoiled they all know that now certainly at those category A academies that if you get your second professional contract I think these days it's quite comfortable for an academy category A player to get that first professional contract mm. because you need to fill in an under 23 program of players you need to you know like I say cater for the late developer and you don't want to just gift wrap to talent before you know they they have been born if you like and hand hand wrap him over to somebody else and suggest that you know there's a good player for you we've let him go too early I do believe clubs hold on to players longer than ever now and, and what you're finding, that second professional contract is not as easy, of course. But if you get to that point and then your third professional contract, the likelihood is that you're going to start thinking about having a different lifestyle for yourself and your family. So I do believe players hopefully love the game before anything else. But I think there are others around it. Some parents, not all. Some agents, not all. But they recognise now that, you know, that if they do get up the pyramid, up the ladder, and get past probably the age of 23, it can be life-changing. So I do think that that has become a little bit bloodthirsty in terms of a side of the game that, that, that I don't like, and it just adds to the pressure for the young player to deliver. It seems to be quite a rare thing now that you see that young player, that sort of one of our own, if you like, making the move from the academy into the first team. And there are obviously notable examples, but it is at the same time few and far between, not just at Manchester City, but across the Premier League in general. Do you think there needs to be more of an emphasis, maybe some kind of rules or regulations or quota that means more young players are coming through and there's more of an emphasis on developing youth? I don't know. They'll find it. I hope they do. But I don't know what more they can do than what they're doing at the moment. I know in the in, in the League One at Fleetwood, it was set uh, from the powers that be that you had to have a homegrown player on your bench. And I know that in my first year, year there, there was a young player that probably benefited from 20 to 30 appearances and his minutes grew to hours. So that in itself... Uh, was one angle uh, of support. Obviously, you've got the old-fashioned reserve league, went to under-21 league, went to under-23 league. 
we've already discussed already. Substitutes have gone from one to two to three mm. to five to six to seven. And I do believe now that, you know, it'll always be forever in a day that the supporters always love that chant and that feeling of one of our own. You only have to look at Manchester City. I mean, their academy now has changed. They've not won the Youth Cup since, you know, we did in 2008, but they've created absolutely millions of pounds as a business mm. with English, European, worldwide players coming in and out of the system. But actually the four who are around it at the moment were actually signed as uh, seven-year-olds all by the previous regime, which was which was ours, which was obviously Phil Foden, who's the, the first name on everybody's lips, but, you know, Tommy Doyle, Taylor Harwood-Bellis and Cole Palmer, all from the Greater Manchester area, three of which are Manchester City supporters, one United. So for all those millions that have been spent in getting players and then millions that have been gained by selling them on quickly... It is actually four locals that are around the city squad yeah. at the moment that were signed as seven-year-olds. So that that's great. That should give young players hope across the country. We're breeding them in through every academy. And I do say this sensibly, I think we'd have liked it a bit sooner. But I think over a 15-year period now, I think we're seeing the benefit of probably 10-year-olds in the academy now becoming like 25. And when you see England getting better in the tournaments at all ages... The, the development of the academies is there for all to see. I think we're signing and developing players through teams now to go and progress in the Premier League. I think everybody's quicker. I think everybody's got street skill. I think they've got that ball manipulation around the feet. I think technique has suffered. I don't think lads stand 30 yards apart anymore and ping the ball to each other like uh, we used to in times gone by. But I do think the game has moved on uh, tactically, that uh, the pitches are pristine, you're well protected by referees. And I think there's been so much to be gained by the facilities and the work that's gone in in academies in the last 15 years. And I think we're seeing it in the Premier League in England. One thing that I do think has suffered, though, is the character of these players who don't appear to be those captains, leaders and strong young men that we once developed a uh, time ago. We will talk about some of those notable players you mentioned in just a moment, but before we do that, who's the biggest talent that you saw coming through the academy that didn't make it, that you thought was a nailed-on certainty to reach that top level but just didn't quite have the attributes? That's difficult to say. I've never really, um, in all my experience, worked with anybody who's been brilliant and, and not made it. A disappointment would be Michael Johnson, mm. but arguably he could say that he made it. I mean, um, he played in Manchester City's first team. He was around uh, a few academies as a young player. He's one of my favourite lads, I can say that now. A great lad. And he got into Manchester City's team. I think at the time you probably play four positions quite comfortably. And I think if you were to sell him at that point, you'd pay 10 million for a number four. You'd pay 15 million for a number eight, number six, and you'd pay 20 million for a number 10 if we're doing it by numbers. <laughs> well, he could, he could do all that. He could sit, he could hold, he could, he could go up and down or he could play around the front. So I thought he was that good and it was uh, fairly short-lived. And as Manchester City grew, he had issues that, that stopped him playing, if you like. And he didn't go on to reach, you know, trophies, Premier League top status and international recognition. So I would probably say him. But arguably, if he was stood in front of me now, he could argue that he did make it. Mm. So he would be one. Anybody else that I thought that has been brilliant that I've worked with has gone on to make it. The three being through Manchester City, the best footballer that I've seen with the ball at his, 
at his right foot, transporting the ball anywhere across the field, moving from the small pitches of eight aside to 11 would be Kieran Trippier. That was heaven sent for him. We've seen it now with his delivery, his free kicks, his crossing, but he could do anything with the ball in terms of passing. Once it was comfortably under control at his, uh, his right foot, you knew it was going to be of uh, high precision high quality, high risk, high reward sometimes. He, he was that good. Then obviously Daniel Sturridge, there was many goal scorers in the City system every year that would get goals. David Ball, one in particular. Harry Bunn was another. But obviously Daniel Sturridge was a, a really a class above in terms of when he came and trained with us because that wasn't every day because he was fast-tracked to be around the first team. Uh, he could get the ball in the net with any angle, any part of his foot, but it was just effortless. It was just comfortable, often side foot in the corners like Robbie Fowler. So I'd have to say he was the best at putting the ball in the goal as he did help us with our Youth Cup campaign going through all the rounds, including the final by scoring. And obviously Phil Foden is the best I've ever seen and it's definitely natural because all we used to do was put the sessions on for it to uh, for the talent to flourish and to blossom. But in terms of receiving the ball, avoiding contact, taking it in full flow, uh, turning defence into attack. I saw it at 10 years of age, now seeing it in, in the Premier League. It was unbelievable. So Foden for the receiving, Sturridge for the finishing, Trippier for the way the ball left his right foot and probably Michael Johnson for not actually achieving what he could, but a fantastic young player. He was a great player when he did get the opportunity and he now owns an absolutely fantastic pub in West Edsbury, one of my favourites, so it's not all bad. <laughs> it's not all bad. The latest news about your team. The biggest stories from your terraces. The most exciting moments from your week. Forget the clickbait and listen to real fans bringing you real news every single day from the Premier League. Listen and subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts by searching Football Social Daily. With Phil Foden, the next question I have on my list was about Phil Foden and I was going to ask whether he stood out from a very young age because he is undoubtedly the hot prospect in English football at the moment. And you've kind of answered that already, that he was genuinely one of the, the, the best talents you've ever seen come through the academy. Absolutely. We knew that quickly. I mean, it was no secret. He was playing at his little football club in Reddish. We had a fantastic uh, junior setup pre-academy at the club. Uh, really hard-working coaches and scouts, the junior academy. So there was noise. We knew about this young player playing in Reddish. He was invited into the, into the system. We had a member of staff, Terry John, who would get lots of lads of that age, loads of them. And it was very much football fun for them. They would come and train before we would train in the evening with the with the schoolboy teams. But at five o'clock, say, you know, they would be in. And there could be a hundred boys over a couple of hours, you know, in, in, in the dome at Platte Lane in Fallowfield there. But there was just one that obviously stuck out and you could see it was that obvious. And that's no disrespect to the other 99, but it was just something that literally I and we had never seen before his dribbling skills, his finishing skills and what I really liked about him he was the complete individual in terms of he could take a ball off a goalkeeper dribble around all these kids his own age and just score past the other goalkeeper or he could involve all his teammates with, with passes and involve everybody so he, he was what he is now which is that individual brilliant player but he was also that team member but it was that receiving that was just incredible, he was checking his shoulder making sure nobody was coming he was receiving it and he was killing the ball the ball was always flowing in, in, in to start an attack but he would he was very good at this and i think this is what we came to shortly after 
I was in at this point coaching all the different age groups over different nights of the week. We were in three times a week and I noticed that, that Phil was in first every time. He was in half an hour before his session, if maybe more. He was with his little baby brother who will be growing up now. He was with his dad and he was having his own little training session, teaching his little baby brother how to play on the AstroTurf. So I would always make sure I'd go out and say hello to his father and I think possibly it was his uncle and just spend a little bit of time with Phil because I knew that he was going to be, well, an amazing player for the club and hopefully for the country. We quickly decided between between us and speaking to his dad that the mixed age challenge would be beneficial for Phil, we thought, and whilst it's dead important not to divorce a young footballer from his childhood and his school friends and his teammates, we thought that Phil should train up with the older age group boys through the week, so we devised a programme for him over three evenings that he would have one night with his own age group and basically would get his own way. Uh, he would have his own fun, he would spend his own time with his with his friends. But the other two nights would, would challenge him by putting him with the teams and what I did, so if I was with the under-14s on a Wednesday, even with the under-15s on a Friday, say, I would bring him with me, I would just basically hook him out of his own dressing room and say, come on, you're with the under-14s tonight. And he would smile. And I think what we saw very, very quickly, I think you've just got to avoid contact around those big boys. You've just got to find those space and get that couple of seconds, you know, spare time on the ball and make sure you don't get hit by the big lads. But then within about a month, maybe five weeks, I think it's like about taking a bit of contact. And when you get hit off these big lads who recognise now that they're not going to give you any uh, free passes anymore, that you are part of their little team as well. So... Uh, all of a sudden, and very, very quickly, I think Phil Foden, with his talent, he learned how to avoid contact. Then I think he learned how to take contact. And I think we're seeing that in the Premier League now. He very rarely gets tackled. He very rarely gets fouled because he's that good. Mm. And he gets so much time on the ball. But when he does get a hit, he's very, very durable and uh, goes to the floor and gets back up again and gets playing. So I do believe that project that we set up for him at that time it was vital for him. It's not necessarily for others, but... He took to it like a duck to water. And just to finish on, on this subject, there was a game at Carrington and I was taking an under-13 game against Middlesbrough against Jamie Pollock, who was a, obviously he had esteem as a player. He was captain of Manchester City at one point. And Phil was on the other pitch. His team were 9-0 up. I think he got about 5-6. And he was having the time of his life. And at the drinks break, I just asked both referees if the little number 10 from from the under nines game could come and finish the game on the under 13s pitch on the big pitch and I think people thought it was possibly crazy I think Jamie Pollock was probably rubbing his hands with the game being won all at that point but uh, I just thought no it's his time to uh, to put him in and I remember three or four games going on at Carrington that day had all finished and Everybody, all every from every game, all the parents came and watched this little player as he was then, doing his best on the big pitch against the big boys. And it was like three, four deep all the way round behind the goals, down the side of, of both touchlines behind the other goal. It was like a mini crowd to see this, well, basically a little genius doing his thing. And obviously, you know, true to where he is now, which is taking on every challenge almost effortlessly we won the game 2-1 and Phil scored from two yards with a diving header and got the winner so you just felt at that point that every challenge that you were setting for him he was taking and I think we're seeing that now 
through Pep Guardiola. He started off with substitute appearances, then he was coming on a little bit longer. He was playing with De Bruyne and Silva, keeping the ball in little triangles, protecting a lead. Then he was getting a bit longer, then he was getting a start at Wembley, then he was coming on at Old Trafford, then he's scoring goals, then he's scoring the winner against Tottenham and you just see there are so many talented players but they're not capable of moments or grasping the opportunities and challenges that are put in front of them and that's the best thing I could say about Phil Foden that for me sets him apart every little thing that you give him as a challenge he, he takes on and beats you get me excited and I'm not a City fan Steve can't <laughs> wait to see what happens next what's the difference between someone like Jaden Sancho and someone like Phil Foden where Phil has stayed with the academy he's taken that step into the first team whereas Jaden Sancho and it's worked for him which is something quite rare because you don't see much English talent going out to European leagues and coming back felt the need to go out to Dortmund in terms of to get playing time and develop is it just that Phil Foden's a better player is it just because it's a different type of player that Sancho needed the game time I think it's impatient ambition from Jaden Sancho, which I respect. I think it's trust from Phil Foden with the City hierarchy and certainly in head coach Pep Guardiola that they went down different journeys, but they both ended up in the England team. They both ended up at top clubs of European football. And I really respect Jaden Sancho. He just arrived at Manchester City as I was leaving. But for him to take himself away into a different country, the challenge of getting into Borussia Dortmund's team, learning a new language, obviously would get more TV exposure by playing and would get more appearances earlier than Phil Foden. I've got so much respect for it. I think Phil Foden's a better footballer. I think he can play six positions. He's proven that for City now. He can play either side of the centre-forward. even played centre-forward against Real Madrid. And he can play right across midfield. So there's six positions that Phil can play, including coming off the bench two for seven. So in Jadon Sancho's case, obviously, he just plays wide on either side. But he has gone and got himself that European experience, that 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 starting experience of starting a game and, and completing it. And having the success with Borussia Dortmund, he looks like he may come back to the Premier League, but he's certainly got himself some appearances, some experiences and got himself into the England setup and probably learned a new culture, a new way of playing football and a new language in the process. I think it's absolutely brilliant that he's done it. But obviously, you know, I obviously love the Phil Foden way too because mm. I've been part of it at the start. Coming back to you, Steve, you're no longer with Fleetwood, but you joined Joey Barton there, who, again, as you said, you were familiar with the youth player. I think Joey Barton's one of those characters that probably gets a bit of a tough rap in the media, particularly. He's seen as this argumentative, angry young man, (laughs) essentially. Is he misunderstood? Um, I don't think he's misunderstood at the moment because you know what you've just said was very much a flashpoint of his career that got him noticed. You know, you notice that sometimes before other things, and then mm. you recognise he can play football. He got an England cap. He would take set plays. He take penalties. He played in Europe with Marseille. He played for fantastic clubs. You know, obviously like Rangers, Manchester City, Newcastle. And he got promoted with Burnley, where he, you know, a bit like Paul Scholes, if you like, he got to a certain age and he developed himself to contribute differently to how he'd played in his youth you know so there's so much to respect for him with him and there's there's a few flashpoints in his career but there's been few and far between in fact hardly any at all as a manager so I think um, I don't think he divides opinion too much in the media anymore because he's a real young manager he's took them on the cusp of of a promotion last season with a, an unlucky effort by getting so close to a playoff final mm. by by not winning obviously against Wickham over, over two legs 
But um, in terms of his development, when I joined with him, as you know, he was one of the first things he did was to to employ me, which was to help him in his early part and middle part of it. You know, he's now uh, changed. You know, four or five captains have left the club. A couple of fans' favourites have left the club. You know, I've changed. A couple of bits of other of the staff have changed, which is fine. But you know, could never have a, a, a bad word against him because of the opportunity that he gave me to work with him and, and to and to help him. I'd like to think that I did. And to move the club forward and uh, he's developing the club um, he's well thought of by the chairman and this is a club really that hasn't got a huge fan base doesn't sell much merchandise etc doesn't spend too much in the transfer market so it's very much in in development but any manager that would go up against him would have to get up early in the morning to outwork him his team talks are legendary in my opinion and um I'm obviously hopeful, you know, just like all those young players, that he goes on to becoming a first-class manager. I believe he already is, but obviously it's a little bit of a secret that because you possibly need a little bit of success and a little bit more exposure, you know, to have that proven. But I, I believe he already is a first-class coach and manager. But uh, he'll just need, obviously, uh, you know, a bit more experience now and a few more years doing it for that to be more obvious to everybody else. But he's certainly at a good club with the right chairman. And I was delighted to spend two years with him. You certainly speak with great admiration. So I'm assuming there's no bad blood there with your departure from Fleetwood. Was it just that it felt like it was the end of your time with the club, that you'd, you'd done what you were there to do? Well, not necessarily, no. I mean, there's certainly no bad blood, no. But um, I think we were overstaffed, that's for sure. There was an opportunity, I think, to bring a friend in to join the staff too. You know, football evolves, like like I say, during that time where I was you know, really loving my time there. We were fourth in the league. At that point, they didn't really progress immediately. I think they only won two games out of the next 15, which saw them drop out of the top 10. But then they showed promotion form to get back into the into the top four, well, top five, I think it was, and, and put them in a playoff spot. It was then the points per game system that decided their fate uh, of where they would end up. And it got them to um, sixth place, I think, and then the playoffs against Wickham. So it ended up still being a good season. They hit the crossbar a little bit. And, you know, I do think that it leaves a little bit in me that I should still be there. But I understand his his, his reasoning for, for changing things because I spent so much time with him and watched him get so many things right that I had to just accept this one as a, as a disappointment to me, but we'll all move forward from it. And uh, I'm still in contact with him and he's one of my, my favourite football people and I only wish him and them the best. So what's next for you, Steve? Are you open to opportunities? You're looking for the next thing? Yeah, absolutely. I obviously need to work. I want to work. It would have to be the, the, the right thing for me moving forwards. I don't have a problem about travelling. I'd like it to be in this country. I've got a couple of opportunities to go back into, into youth football, but I still think now my place is, is still around first-team football. So it's working towards that opportunity, you know, enhancing my, my studying of, of the game across the levels, even across, across the countries, the world, by watching it refreshing my courses and things like that but there's nothing better than getting up in the morning planning your, your day and your week of development of, of, of your team training to win and obviously getting in the battle on the Saturday trying to get those three points for, for your club and your supporters and your chairman so I miss that and uh, I miss it badly so it'll be something that I'll be hoping to do quite quickly with the right club with the right people Steve it's been fascinating talking to you you clearly speak with knowledge and passion which are two of the things I think are most important in football so I'm sure we'll see you back in the game very soon but thank you very much for your time on the podcast thank you for having me 
Thank you very much to Steve for giving his time for football stories. He's still only 48, Steve. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he can go on and achieve from here in terms of coaching and in terms of management as well. Clearly a man who has a huge talent for player development. If you want to hear more about life in a youth team from the other side of it, from the players, then check out a chat I had with Dan McCarthy in this series. He's a former youth team player at Chelsea. He gave a really interesting account of what it's like to get into and ultimately be rejected by a top-level Premier League academy. Click subscribe so you get that and every other podcast in this series. And do make sure, if you're a fan of the Premier League as well, to check out Football Social Daily. It is Sports Social's daily Premier League podcast. It features real fans every day of the season talking about the real stuff that most fans really care about. You can find it by searching Football Social Daily wherever you are listening to this podcast. Click subscribe to that as well for daily football news. But for now, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Football Stories is a sports social production and part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hosted and produced by Jim Salverson with additional production support and imaging from Ant McGinley. Find more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.